When you retire after long years spent at work, you might expect a bit of peace. Bowling clubs and gardening and luxury cruises are the cliches, aren't they? Or, at the very least, you'd expect the the presentation of a carriage clock or a Parker pen in a box. Today we learn what happened to the HMS Plym, a ship who served in the Atlantic convoys during the war. And, after all that hard work, what was her fate in later years? Today we start in the Cold War paranoia of 1950s London and end up on a deserted island off the west coast of Australia where poor old HMS Plym met her end. We've all heard of Cold War paranoia. Maybe the bomb's going to drop. Is this it? Will my kids get to grow up? Maybe not. Maybe my neighbours are me. Maybe my sisters are me. Maybe they're everywhere. Red's under the bed. With all the stress and uncertainty and anxiety brought by this new atomic age, this new nuclear world which could end in a boiling flash, paranoia did seem like a reasonable response. In the early Cold War, another fear began creeping in. Besides the threat of annihilation or the march of communism, we began to worry about the possibility of the Soviets smuggling an atomic device into the country in a suitcase. Who says your bomb has to fall from a plane? We all might be watching the skies for incoming Soviet bears when all along it's been quietly brought into the country in a boring old suitcase. Carried somewhere, anywhere, the train station, the high street, plonked down in front of Buckingham Palace and kaboom. Here's a quote from the Coventry Evening Telegraph uh, from 23rd of April 1954, which talked about this threat, this fear. Headline is FBI warning of miniature atom bombs. A few days ago, J. Edgar Hoover, the famous director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, alerted police officials with word that there is a danger of miniature atom bombs being smuggled into the United States in any large-sized suitcase or travelling bag. A fiction writer's dream of midget A-bombs carried in suitcases to commit atomic sabotage seems to have entered the realm of reality. No longer is the A-bomb that gargantuan weapon like the ones dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It has been shrunk so that it could be concealed in an ordinary refrigerator crate. The article goes on to say there is no tick 
from any timing mechanism. There is no danger of the bomb exploding until after the saboteur has left the city, even returned to Europe. Several bombs planted in different cities could be simultaneously exploded by remote control. Is it possible that Malenkov might suddenly announce one day, powerful A-bombs have been planted in every major American city. Unless the USA capitulates within 24 hours, these cities will be blown off the map one at a time. Police all over the USA are to watch for exceptionally heavy luggage and to look out for the unusual components of midget A-bombs. Anyone arriving in America with an oversized suitcase is going to be subjected to a very thorough search from now on. Yes. You know, this chap's done it very well. Did you notice the address? He's used a real embossing stamp. Is he? Holland here. Yes, sir. What? Last night? Hold on. Quickly, Davis. Lay on a couple of cars and four men. Now listen, fella, I'm coming down. Until I arrive, nobody must enter the place or leave it, and there must be no discussion. I'll be with you in an hour. That's from the trailer of Seven Days to Noon, a film made in 1950 which brought this fear to the cinema screen. Seven Days to Noon is about a British nuclear scientist who becomes horribly disillusioned and horrified by his work. Or maybe he's just had a total nervous breakdown. Whatever the reason, he steals an atomic bomb, stuffs it into a Gladstone bag, and runs around London for a few days with it. He has written to the Prime Minister, telling him that unless work on the British nuclear bomb stops, then he will detonate his stolen bomb in the heart of London. He skulks around London with his Gladstone bag, like another terrifying figure from London history, Jack the Ripper, who also lurked on the streets with a Gladstone bag full of something horrible. Although Jack the Ripper nerds, and I include myself in that, will tell you that's all a big myth. There was never an eyewitness sighting of Jack the Ripper or of a Jack the Ripper suspect with a Gladstone bag. All there was was um, one innocent guy who went trotting along Berner Street, where one of the victims had just been found, with a black shiny bag, but he was totally innocent, nothing to do with anything, but someone saw a guy running along the street with a shiny black bag and the public imagination seized on that. But let's get back to nuclear war. So in the 1950s, the authorities were fretting about sneaky, unorthodox delivery of a nuke and in Britain, an island nation of course, thoughts turned to whether a nuclear device could be brought in on a foreign ship. The ship comes in, gets itself nice and snug and comfortable in the port, the port's probably being near a whopping great city, Liverpool, Glasgow, Newcastle, maybe even the docks in London for example. The British coastline is absolutely peppered with ports, any ship-bound Soviets could have taken their pick. And so when Britain came to test her first atomic bomb, they decided not to stick it on top of a tower, as with the Trinity test, and neither did they opt to drop it from a plane or 
detonate it deep underwater. Instead, they placed it in the hold of HMS Plym and blew it up on board the ship so they could gather information on how a nuke reacts and how the surrounding water reacts when the thing goes up on board ship. Now, poor old HMS Plym had worked bloody hard during the war. She had served in the Atlantic convoys, escorting groups of merchant ships across the ocean, protecting them from German U-boats. When the war ended, of course, she was no longer needed for that purpose. And yet she was a young ship, having only been launched in 1943. So, what to do with her? She was saved from the scrapyard by being chosen for this unique task. This great Cold War feat. Now, that reminds me of the story of Laika, the stray dog who was scooped off the streets of Moscow and chosen to be sent into space by the Soviets. Poor little Laika, who died alone up in the silence of space. Maybe she'd rather just have stayed unknown and taken her chances on the Moscow streets. Like Laika, the HMS Plym was chosen for this important Cold War role. Whether they liked it or not, she would be part of Operation Hurricane, Britain's first atomic test, and so in 1952 she set sail for Australia, carrying the bomb in her hold. She didn't carry the whole bomb, I should add. The plutonium core was sent to Australia separately, sent by plane, and it would be assembled on location. Uh, There were plans made for the, (laughs) the safe retrieval of the core in case the plane crashed into the sea. Um, If this happened, the scientist on board who was in charge of the thing was ordered to strap it to his chest and then leap from the plane with a parachute. The plutonium core had been securely packaged in a cork box, meaning it would float on the water if they did crash land. And then if seawater intrudes on the cork, it will burst a bag of dye, and of course that will turn the sea around it a weird colour, helping any search planes find it. And we assume helping them find the poor scientist who's splashing about beside it. HMS Plym was escorted to Australia by HMS Campania, an aircraft carrier which had also served in the war and who had enjoyed a a nice bit of colourful retirement in the post-war period when she was used in the Festival of Britain. Campania was the official exhibition ship and toured lots of Britain's biggest ports, which of course allowed the festival to reach different areas of the country, meaning it wasn't just focused on London. After a year of uh, partying, hosting exhibitions, lots of happy crowds on board, being decorated with bunting... It was back to serious business. Campania was to be the command ship for Operation Hurricane and would escort the ships out to the nuclear testing ground in Australia. All her cheery bunting was stripped away, all her festive kit was removed and instead she got stocked up with laboratories, offices, cabins and even a desalination plant 
to ensure fresh drinking water for the hundreds of people involved in the operation. The ships left Britain in June 1952 and went a long way round to Australia, sailing by the Cape of Good Hope, as it wasn't considered wise to risk the Suez Canal. They finally arrived at their destination in August, and the site was the Australian Montebello Islands, which are off its western coast. As the ships neared the destination, technicians who had already arrived were preparing the test site. Here's a quote, quite an unpleasant quote, from the book Maralinga by Frank Walker. I was part of several groups put ashore to chase away any Aborigines who were there. I was with a patrol on the beach when we saw some Aborigines on a hill in the distance. We fired our guns in the air to scare them away. I don't know if it worked, but the officer with us later spoke to some Aborigines he saw on the coast. He told them to get far away, as there was a big bang coming. As HMS Plym drew nearer, the captain finally told his crew precisely what their mission was. They weren't just delivering the bomb, they would place the armed bomb in the hold, and then it would be detonated on board. Their ship was to be sacrificed. So poor old Plym reaches the Montebello Islands, drops her anchor in the lovely blue waters, and then all the scientists come swarming all over her, getting everything set up for the detonation. The crew had their last meal on board and even washed up all the dishes. Sailors are traditionally quite a superstitious bunch, and even though the dirty dishes would soon be vaporised, it was considered bad luck to leave them there. Besides which, their mums would have killed them. So, with everything ready, with the ship safely anchored, with the bomb safely armed, the last crew left the ship, and on October the 3rd, the button was pressed, and the bomb, which was sitting in the hold of the ship, three metres below water level, exploded. The ship was vaporised. All that was left of Plym was a, quote, gluey black substance, which eventually washed up on the shore. This was, according to the Maralinga book, magnetic iron oxide. So the ship, um, all her proud history on the Atlantic, all the lives she helped save, all the work and sweat put into building her and keeping her out at sea, all the technical gear on board, all the cabins and machinery and those clean plates, all gone. Nothing left but some black goo. Here's a news clip from the time. One minute to go. Slowly the seconds tick away. Tons of water, mud and sand blackened the gigantic fireball. 
Like a huge boiling cauldron, the cloud billowed upwards to a height of 10,000 feet within two minutes. Rear Admiral Torless, who was in command of the operation, and Dr. Penny turned to watch the great cloud after its initial blinding flash was over. Somewhere out there, the ship carrying the weapon had been vaporized. Smoke rose higher and higher, the strong wind twisting and sprawling it until it was a mile wide at its center and about two and a half miles high. To Dr. Penny and his team, great credit is due for this mighty British achievement. The spectacular success of the operation furthers our hopes of peace, for it seems that by the possession of such deadly weapons, peace can be maintained in this troubled world. The resulting mushroom cloud wasn't actually shaped like a mushroom cloud. Britain's Britain's first atomic test was a success. They had done it. They had joined the elite nuclear club. But the photos they sent home <laughs> wouldn't show the typical terrifying mushroom. Instead, the cloud has been described as a cauliflower. If you Google Operation Hurricane, you'll see it. It looks like a a smoky, deformed, hunched, sulky black cauliflower. Don't ask me how cauliflowers can be sulky, that's just how I see it. So our smoky black cauliflower emerged and soon the winds began to push and pull at the cloud and it shifted and changed into a zigzag shape. So we were denied the famous mushroom, instead we get cauliflower and zigzags. Turning again to the Maralinga book, we have a good eyewitness report of the detonation. Well, not an eyewitness, of course, as you weren't allowed to look at the blast. Soldiers had to turn away to protect their eyes. But on page 25, we find this. The signal came over the radio to prepare for countdown, and a heavy black canvas tarpaulin was pulled over the boat, so we were now in darkness. We all then draped jungle green towels over our heads, and I pressed the palms of my hands into my eye sockets. I was dressed in shorts and a pair of shoes. At zero, there was a blinding electric blue light of an intensity I had not seen before or since. I pressed my hands harder to my eyes. Then I realised I could see the bones of my hands. It seemed that this light was passing through the tarpaulin and towel for about 10 to 12 seconds and there seemed to be two surges and two detonations with a continued rumbling and boiling sensation. My body seemed first to be compressed and then billowing like a balloon. So that was Britain's first atomic test. A horrible black cauliflower and a sacrificed ship. Yes, the thing looked odd, but that was hardly the point. It had been done. And most importantly, it had been done without American assistance. The Brits were in the club. But they hardly had any time to celebrate because one month later, the Americans exploded the first hydrogen bomb and cracked open a new and horrible arms race. The British had hardly caught their breath from racing to catch up. 
when they found they'd have to start running again to keep up with the big boys. Winston Churchill, Prime Minister again after Clement Attlee, said that we must get a hydrogen bomb of our own, remarking, it's the price we pay to sit at the top table. And so next week we will take a look at Britain's first hydrogen bomb. I want to thank all of my patrons this week because um, obviously they contribute money each month to support the podcast and my work. But this particular episode, we can see directly how they helped. They helped pay for the Maralinga book. And earlier in the episode when I read out the newspaper article about the midget A-bombs, that was from the, a newspaper archive. I pay a yearly subscription to that. And again, that's paid for from my Patreon money. So thank you every single person who donates money each month through my Patreon. If you want to join and contribute, please do take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And I have two new patrons this week that I'd like to give a special shout out to. Let me say thank you to Garrick Yates and Simon Proctor. And thank you also to David Daly who increased his pledge. So please do consider joining my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Thank you, everyone who does so. Remember, you can get in touch with me through Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, through Facebook at Nuclear Britain, or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. And I'll be back next week where we will look at Britain's first hydrogen bomb test, Operation Grapple. Thank you.